The sermon text is the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into the whole region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, just as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight and the rough ways smooth and everyone will see the salvation of God. The gospel of our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Shall we try something a little bit different to start off the sermon today? Why not, eh? Let's try something interactive, potentially fun. Ready? Okay. First of all, there are rules. If you have your bulletin open, especially if you have it open to the gospel, you need to close it at this time. And no peeking, that's cheating. Because I have some quiz questions for you about today's gospel to test how closely you were paying attention when it was read a few moments ago. Ready? <laughs> quiz question number one on today's gospel. In the opening verses of chapter 3, St. Luke tells us the name of the Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis at the time of John the Baptist. If you remember the name of that Tetrarch, award yourself one point now. Okay, quiz question number two on today's gospel. In the opening verses, St. Luke also informed us of the name of the Tetrarch of Abilene at the time of John the Baptist. If you can remember the name of the Tetrarch of Abilene, award yourself a second point. This is fun, isn't it? I thought it was going to be fun. All right, now here's the third and final question about today's gospel. This is the last one, I promise. If you don't know what a tetrarch is, you don't care, and you're wondering why we are wasting time talking about tetrarchs, award yourself half a point. <laughs> and we aren't going to go around and do a formal survey, but I wonder right now just how many of us have exactly half a point. <laughs> and it does sort of seem kind of trivial, doesn't it? The names of these historical secular leaders that St. Luke includes at the beginning of this gospel makes you wonder a little bit who really cares, right? Who the tetrarchs were or the governor or the king or for that matter, the emperor at the time of John the Baptist. Why can't we just fast forward through that and, you know, get to the important stuff, which is what John the Baptist actually has to say to us. Well, one answer to the question is, I don't know. I'm not the one who decided to put these names in this gospel. St. Luke did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And nobody would argue that this is the most important few verses in the whole Bible or in Luke's gospel or even in this third chapter of Luke's gospel. And yet here they are, inspired by the Holy Spirit to be here. We could ask St. Luke why, but he's been happy in heaven for. 19 centuries plus, so that option's off the table too. Whatever, whatever the exact reason or reasons 
for the names of these leaders and the regions that they ruled to be included at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, it does give a certain flavor to this section of Scripture. See, these leaders were real historical figures. They ate, they drank, they walked, they talked. Their existence is a historical fact. They ruled actual human beings in actual regions. They lived at actual point time in history. And St. Luke uses the mention of these real historical figures to lead directly into the account of John the Baptist. And that tells us something. It tells us the Holy Spirit would have us believe that John the Baptist is a real historical human being with a real divine message from God. That there really was a man who wore animal skins and stood out in the desert preaching about repentance and he really did eat locusts and wild honey. This is not a cartoon character. This is not a made-up legend. And he actually spoke as a prophet from God, a divine message, the importance of repenting and preparing your heart for the coming of the Savior. It's a real prophet from God with an actual message from heaven. And now, I, I doubt, I hope, nobody here would ever say, wow, no, John the Baptist, that's got to be made up. That's just a myth. That's just a storybook thing. There wasn't anybody ever actually like that. And I doubt that anyone would say, well, that message to repent and get ready for the Lord, that's not a real serious thing from God. Nobody would say that, but do we always treat in our lives, do we always treat John the Baptist and his, his call to repent as something real, something serious that comes from God himself? Because, you know, we stand up as we did today in worship. We confess our sins to God. We ask him for forgiveness. We receive it from him. We do that in worship. Hopefully we also remember to do that in our prayers, take time to confess our sins to God then. Scripture says we can even confess our sins to a fellow Christian and ask them for forgiveness from God and, and they can give it to us from God. But do we ever ask God for forgiveness and receive it and then turn right back around to the same junk that we just got done asking for and receiving forgiveness? Maybe right back to these same websites, maybe right back to putting in half-hearted effort at work or school. Is that treating John the Baptist and his message of repentance as something real, something serious for our lives? I remember car ride homes when I was a kid, exchanging verbal abuse with my older brother, punching each other in the back seat of the car. And occasionally my exasperated mother swiveling around in the passenger seat and saying, we just got out of church 10 minutes ago and already with you too. And that was a fair point, wasn't it? Not even an hour earlier, I had stood up in church with a couple of hundred fellow Christians, asked God for forgiveness and received it. And now here I was, right back to fighting with my brother, not even giving it a second thought, not even trying to resist it, actively trying to knock each other unconscious. And too often... <laughs> This is the way Christians, my repentancy is a 25-second slot between the invocation and the prayer of the day where I ask for forgiveness and receive it, and then the rest of my life I just go back to doing what I was doing before. But that's not real, 
genuine repentance. Real repentance shows itself in the whole life that a person lives. Not that you're never going to sin again after you repent, because we still have a sinful nature. We are still going to slip up. But it does show itself as a lifestyle in the way we speak, in the way we act, even in the words that we think. Genuine godly repentance recognizes that Jesus is coming back on the last day and that when he does, he's going to be looking for faith in human hearts and the fruits of faith in Christians' lives. Repentance is what Isaiah saw when he looked ahead 700 years. It's what John the Baptist preached. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough ways smooth. So the road into your individual heart needs to be smooth, straight, and level for the Lord to enter. And mindlessly going back to the same sins without even fighting it, that's the kind of thing that digs potholes, puts up roadblocks into a person's heart. Scripture says, you live that way long enough, Jesus won't travel. So this issue of Repentance, this is real, serious business. Now, did you know that Luke chapter 3 is not the only time in his gospel that he opens an account by mentioning real historical leaders? There is another place, just one chapter earlier, Luke chapter 2. And I'm guessing this would be a section of scripture that you would be more familiar with. And you may have even memorized it when you were a kid right around this time of year. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governing Syria, and everyone went to register, each to his own town. Ah, see, here we have another story where St. Luke is emphasizing the reality, the historicity of what he is writing by starting it off with the names of historical secular leaders. So what follows here is not a made-up story for children. There really was a virgin named Mary with a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit in her womb. And right off the bat, the fact that the Son of God was in the womb of the Virgin Mary, right off the bat, that tells us something very important about God. He takes all of our sin dead serious. God takes all of our sins so serious that he sent his own Son to save us from it. God's own son, no other payment would ever suffice. Nothing else would ever be enough other than God's own son, the highest payment that could possibly be made for our sins. So God sent his son and Jesus came. He lived a holy life to cover over all of our sins. He sacrificed himself and took the punishment for all of those sins. And then came a very real physical resurrection on Easter morning. See, this entire story of Jesus' birth and everything he did to save us, this is not just some churchy thing either. It is something that really happened, and it really happened so we would know the God who hates our sins so much also forgives those sins and loves us in his son, Jesus. See, whenever you talk about true, genuine Christian repentance, Jesus always has to be in the picture because real repentance has two parts to it. One is identifying the sin in your life and, and taking it seriously the way that God does, not mindlessly going back to those same sins. 
being genuinely sorry for them. But the other part of repentance that has to be there is trusting that God has made the payment for those sins. And they are forgiven in his son, Jesus Christ. When you have both of those things, then you have real, genuine Christian repentance. And the road into your heart is smooth, level, and straight for Jesus to travel. And then grace on top of grace, God gives you something else to assure you of your forgiveness and to strengthen you to live a truly repentant life. John went into the whole region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the major difference between the baptism of John and the baptism that you and I receive is timing. The baptism of John looked forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our baptism, of course, looks back to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they have very important things in common. God used John's baptism as well as the one we received to turn our hearts to Jesus in faith, to forgive our sins. And God did even more than that for us in the waters of baptism. He also worked in us a new attitude, an attitude that matches God, an attitude that takes all sin seriously, despises it, and forsakes it, leaves that sin behind. See, baptism too is something real from God. It is not just a churchy thing, an outward sign or a symbol. It is the actual power of God to create faith, to forgive our sins, and to give us the power in our lives to identify those sins, fight them, and beat them. We have peace with God. We find it at the cross of Jesus Christ, proclaimed in God's word, planted at the font. And this peace that we have with God, this is the best news that there could ever be. But it's more than just good news. It is power. Power for true repentance, to battle the sins in our lives, and in Jesus' name, to beat them. So this morning, here is something to try. To improve your, your life of repentance. Look at your life and try to identify any pet sins that may be there. And what I mean by a pet sin is a, a sin that you are comfortable committing, a sin that you almost go back to like an old friend, and you're not really even fighting it anymore. It doesn't really even bother you. These pet sins are really dangerous because these are the ones that reveal a level of phoniness and the repentance of a Christian, right? And these pet sins, in order to find them, you may have to do a little review of God's commandments and then take kind of an honest and a thorough look at your life to see where there may be sins that you're just kind of going along with, not really even struggling against anymore. And they could be in so many different places that it's probably foolish to even try to use examples because once you start, you'll never stop. But maybe just one, okay? Uh, so if God's, if God's commandments tell me, you shall not steal, Right? A life of true repentance is going to look and see, is there anywhere in my life where I'm comfortable doing this, where it doesn't bother, I'm not fighting it anymore. For instance, am I comfortable lowballing my income on my tax return, thereby stealing from my government? Because, hey, everybody does it, right? And you're a sucker if you don't. Well, I'm not fighting that theft anymore, am I? Am I comfortable at work? Stretching my brakes an extra five minutes, stealing from my boss. Am I comfortable 
stealing from the owner of a restaurant by eating off the plate of somebody who ordered the buffet when I did not. Don't laugh at that last one. I know it seems like nothing, but that's the thing. It's not the so-called size of the sin. It's not the seriousness of the sin from our perspective. It's stealing. It's wrong. It doesn't matter if you're embezzling a million dollars or sneaking into a second movie after you only paid for one. Life of true repentance searches those sins out and treats them the way the Heavenly Father does, despises them enough to send his son to die for those sins. And then, in the strength of Jesus' forgiveness, you fight those sins. You remember that those sins are forgiven in your Savior Jesus, and you rise up in the shadow of his cross with the waters of your baptism dripping off of you to fight against those sins. And if you slip up, if you fall back into one of those sins, don't worry about it. It's a beautiful thing about Christ. You can always go back to his cross, back to the waters of his baptism again, rise up to fight again. But that is the life of true Christian repentance. To fight in the strength of Christ's forgiveness against every sin in our lives. We do it in the very real forgiveness and grace of God. Amen.